Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short term plans at uh1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. Hello there, you're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast with Owen and Ken on the day that has seen the retirement of one of the most spectacular footballers of the last 20 years, Stephen Gerrard, Ken. Oh yeah. A man whose barometer was permanently set to hurricane. I would you ever give over on? What's seed in your lines? Would you ever give over? <laughs> That was a while ago now. Yeah. Um, Two years ago you wrote that piece. Uh, I wrote it actually three, nearly three years ago, um, but they didn't put it out for a few months for some reason, by which time, I mean, I'd kind of written it in terms of, oh, Stephen Gerrard, he'll never win the league now. And actually by the time it was published was like March 2014. It's like, <laughs> no, he actually is. <laughs> all right, yeah. It's all going to work out, but of course it didn't. And I mean, he, he's announced his retirement today, but... Realistically, I th- he's, he's kind of been, a while. he's been going through the motions for a while now. The American experience didn't really seem to suit him. I don't know if LA is more of a Robbie Keane town than a Stephen Gerrard town. Well, Whether it's the style of football, what it is, but it doesn't sound like he was exactly a runaway success there. No, I mean Robbie Keane obviously went over at an earlier stage of his career. I mean Keane is younger than Gerrard by a couple of months, and he's been there since what 2011. Whereas Jared only went over, was it this year? He only had one season with them, yeah. Um, so you know, uh, I, I, by the time he arrived, he was already gone. You know, a player who who relied to a large extent on his great athleticism no longer had the athleticism. Um, one thing that a lot of players in MLS can do is run, and that's something Jared couldn't do anymore. And also, he just he, he just seemed sort of heartbroken ever since he fell over and Demba scored. He was heartbroken. It was finished. I saw that pop up again on TV the other day. Just randomly, Sky was on the background as well on one of these shows. Yeah. Uh, I saw about a minute of it, but you couldn't. When I saw what they're about to show, I couldn't take my eyes off it. You know, oh, it's God. just it is this gruesome element to watching poor old Stephen. And I do. I'm a Stephen Jarrett fan. I, I you know I think. As you would have outlined in your piece, there are, are he's by no means the perfect footballer, mm. and he's not even the type of footballer that maybe he was classified as by a lot of people for a large part of his career. This or that he mm, classified himself. Yeah, as. this sort of midfield general who controls the game. I think most people towards the end of his career maybe came to understand that that's not what he was. But as I said, it's not. He was a spectacular footballer, mm. and he's a guy. He, he he did have that ability to do something amazing that you all dream of when you're growing that everybody dreams of when they're growing up as a kid. Yeah. I wish I could just at a given time in a game beat two men and smack a ball into the top corner. Yeah, particularly smacking the ball. That was one thing he was he was always oh, yeah. very good at. Yeah. Um I, I mean I think he didn't even realise what type of player he was. I think he he uh he only really started to become this kind of um Number 10, you know, what was his best? He had two really great seasons. One of them was 2005-06 when he won the PFA Player of the Year 
One of them was 2008-9 when he won the Football Writers Football of the Year. The first of those seasons, he was playing on the right side of a 4-2-3-1. Um, you know, an atta- basically attacking midfielder. Job is to get in and score goals. Uh, and the second of those, he was the middle player in the of, of a 4-2-3-1, the, the number 10. And that was maybe what he should have been doing all along, but he had an idea for a long time that, you know, you're a number six, that type of a player, a box-to-box midfielder, conditioned by the expectations, I think, of the people around him, took a look at a guy who was kind of, you know, shaven-headed, sort of uh, strong-looking guy. thought, yeah, this is the box-to-box midfielder we're looking for. Whereas, whereas actually, he was always more of a creative player, you know, a kind of instinctive, improvisational player. Um, The opposite, in a lot of respects, of Xabi Alonso, say, who he played really effectively with, um, yeah, a great player. I mean, if we were talking about why things didn't work out from in LA, I mean, you, you, you know, you don't want to necessarily pontificate on people's private affairs, but I can't help but think that the fact that Robbie Keane, for instance, was there with his family, um, and Steve Gerrard wasn't, must have had some bearing. I mean, I don't know why they decided to do that. Clearly, they could have moved. You know, it's not as though they're, uh, you know, they have a few quid in the bank, Ken. Exactly. You know, the the. It was all. It could have been done, but they obviously decided they didn't want to do that. So I guess well, he I guess, was. Yeah, kids at a certain age, or whatever it might be. Uh, I think kids, kids at a certain age. Well, look, most kids would enjoy LA. Is that what you're saying? Well, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think I, I don't know. I, I mean, anything that I say sounds like a, a judgment on the on the affairs of the Jared <laughs> family. They're allowed to do what they want, but you know, I, I guess, I guess uh, a lot of people also might take the view that. Let's just move to the, let's all move and live in the same country together, given that we've got all this cash and, you know, probably it would be quite a nice setup over there. And, you know, I, I don't know. Look, but, but uh, he never really seemed to be too happy there. And I guess he's probably pleased to be, uh, to be back. Richie Sadler is in studio today to talk about, well, so many issues around the sexual abuse of young footballers. This is a tragic story that's been brilliantly and shockingly highlighted in the last week or so, particularly by Daniel Taylor, who kicked things off in The Guardian with his heartbreaking inter- interview with Andy Woodward, former Crew Alexandra player who was sexually abused as a boy by a p- notorious paedophile coach there. Now, a lot of questions uh, are, are will be asked and are being asked around, certainly we're going to ask them around the power that these coaches have in the lives of young kids, the effects that this abuse can have on, on their careers, on their lives. The lack of proper response from the club is huge. In this case, particularly this, this particular story. And we'll get into all of that with Richie after the report on sport. So, um, the first thing, I guess, is that Gareth Bale is at risk of not being fit for the Ireland match. Oh, no, you want to play them at their strongest, don't you? You do. You really want to test test yourself <laughs> against them, them when they're at their best. No, we've done that enough over the years. <laughs> Let's test them against. Is Ramsey any any issues with Ramsey? Um, Ramsey seems to be okay at the moment, but give well, it time. Touch wood. It's oh. it's March. <laughs> <laughs> Just a hamstring strain, Ken. I don't mean it in serious. It's March twenty fourth, I believe, is the game. What's it today? November twenty third, twenty fourth. So what's Bale's? Twenty fourth. He's having surgery on an ankle injury, um, and Real Madrid have said that it could keep him out for four months. Four months would take him up to December, January, February, March. Maybe he could make his comeback against Ireland. Would he be fit? To be honest, a lot of a lot of the time when players at a, an elite institution like Real Madrid get injured, they come back quicker than you might expect. I suppose they are the top, uh, the top players, and maybe they're, they're part of what makes them top is their quick healing ability. So. You know, he probably will be. I mean, I, you know, let's not go out over this. It's it's terrible. He misses the, for sure the game against Barcelona, which is I think the fourth of December, um, and he's going to miss a lot of other games besides for Real Madrid. So, I guess it should go if it's four months. Whether he's going to be available again mm. uh, by the time that we play them, obviously, if he's missing from the Wales team, it's, it completely transforms the game. You know, if 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 uh, Wales are without their superhero, it. Um, I guess it makes it a lot more likely that Ireland will be able to win. Would you prefer to play them with without Gareth Bale or with Gareth Bale, a, a patently unfit Gareth Bale? Oh, I'd, I mean, these are such awful choices. On I don't even, I don't even think about it. But to be to be frank, without Gareth Bale, <laughs> um, no Bale effect at all in this. Match. Even a not that fit Gareth Bale could still He'll take free, a free kick. Yeah, that would yeah. be. The, 
the issue, yeah. So, um, so get well soon. Get well, uh, late March, early April, Gareth. Um, so what, what else has been happening today? Euro 2020, it's all international football. I know there's been the Champions League, but it's all international football at the moment. Euro 2020, um, the brand launch of this happened uh, today uh, at the CHQ building in Dublin. The logo features the city's Beckett Bridge as part of UEFA's brand theme of City Bridges for the 60th anniversary running of the tournament. So um, the great and the good were present. John Delaney? Which one is the Beckett Bridge? Oh, it's the one down, it's the one down beyond the Matt Talbot Bridge. Oh, no, hang on. Is that it? I'm just going to have a look at it now. Ah, Bridge Talk. Oh, no, yeah, it's the one outside the, uh, outside the convention centre. That's where the... That's where the launch was, was it? Yeah. Um, the one that looks like a harp. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. It's a sort of suspension bridge. Yeah. Be- uh, beautiful piece of architecture. Yeah, it's not bad. I like a good bridge, Ken. I, I agree with UEFA's theme. Um, bridges in cities. Bridges. I would have gone for the Haypenny Bridge myself now if I was in Dublin, but I'm, I'm, I'm old school like that. Yeah, we're coming, we're coming together uh, as people, either side of the river, uh, coming across the bridge and joining hands. So uh, John Delaney was there. We don't get to see him that much these days. But he was there, and he um, he had a little statement. He said, It's a unique partnership across football, government, city council, and more than 20 other agencies and organizations. All partners collectively wore the green jersey in winning the bid for these games, which we expect will have a significant sporting, tourism, and economic benefit for Dublin and Ireland. I would like to thank you, AFA rewarding us host city status for this famous tournament. The hosting of these games gives us a great opportunity to grow football, particularly street and community football. I'm delighted Robbie Keane has agreed to lend his support to leave a strong football legacy for the next generation. So you've got a few things there. The uh, the idea of the wearing the green jersey used as a, an, an unambiguous positive. Um, significant tourism benefit, not only for Dublin, but for Ireland. Well, we'll wait and see, I guess, but... And grow, of course, he's is a transitive verb. Uh, growing football. And that's what the AFA are going to do. Um, we'll wait. I suppose we'll wait and see if, it's, if the, uh, the dividend from hosting these games is as great as the bonanza that followed the 2011 Europa League final between Braga and Porto. Oh, you don't... You don't feel there was a... Just the way that, the way that your eyes sort of darted around the room there, and I'm I'm not even sure you remembered that Dublin hosted the 2011 Europa League final between Braga and Porto. The only reason I remember it is because wasn't that oh my god I've forgotten the name of the manager now Andre Villas-Boas. Andre Villas Boas yeah that was when he he came to town oh he came to town yeah and at the at the um, you know he he was managing a fantastic Porto team looking back it could have been that. Simply Falcao scoring a goal in every game did a lot to boost um, the reputation of Andre Villas-Boas. Uh, and by the time, I mean, I still remember his press conference because I mean he was so euphoric. Uh, he's sitting there in the press room in the Aviva, so excited, jumping like almost jumping around in his chair, and uh, and he paid tribute to you know Bobby Robson and to Guardiola, and he sort of mentioned Mourinho, who he used to work for. Mm. Um, but it was clear that, that Guardiola was his inspiration. Bobby Robson was was like his football father. And Mourinho was kind of... An annoying cousin. Another person Older who cousin. also was involved in his career. But he, he seemed like a really idealistic, intense, uh, principled young man. I mean, he said, some, he said stuff like, you know, I, I'm only going to be in football for a short time, you know, so I want to I do as much as I can. You know, after that, you know, like, what are you going to do? He's like, 10 years, I'm going to do 10 years, which is five years ago, so he's halfway there. Um, 10 years, and then, you know, then what are you going to do then? Oh, motorsport. We're like, what? Yeah, I'm going to buy a big uh, a big boat, a big bike, and jet off, mm-hmm. said Villas-Boas. But, you know, he, and he was all talking about how he's going to stick with Porto and what a special team they had and how they were going to go and try and win the Champions League. Moments later, he joined Chelsea. And then, look at the, the like, he's Chelsea... Zenit, uh, China. He's in China now. Right. Getting paid a stupendous amount of money. He's literally got his eye on a yacht to rival Eclipse, <laughs> the yacht of, of Roman Abramovich. You sack, sack me. You, you think you can sack me? <laughs> Says Vilsbo, screaming down from the helipad of his enormous yacht, dwarfing the oligarchs, uh, 
piddly little dinghy. This is uh, this appeared to be what he was actually all about: cash. Uh, and look, I don't blame him. You know who who wouldn't sign a contract with a, to manage a Chinese football team for you know twenty million? Come on, wouldn't would you do it? I'd do it. Well, I don't know. You would do it right now. Even I would absolutely. You'd be, you'd be exposed as a charlatan of football manager. This is maybe a, not. Maybe come and get me, plea. Yeah. This is a come and get me plea. I'm I'm willing to do it. And Kenny was there also apparently, uh, um, talking about great times that Ireland had hosted international sporting events and made a a, a jokey reference to the 1998 Tour de France. Oh, you'll remember that one. Syringes falling out of suitcases, all Did he that. Say that? <laughs> yeah, apparently so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, so uh, pretty decent, decent gag. I irreverent guess. gag there from yeah. Enda Kenny. Edgy. Um, Councillor Dermot Lacey. He says, on behalf of my fellow councillors and all Dubliners, I'm delighted to be part of the UEFA Euro 2020 initiative. Dublin is a great sporting city, and Euro 2020 will no doubt cement and build on that. Dublin will have its special Irish welcome, ready for thousands of football supporters from all around Europe. They will experience all this great city has to offer, including its easily accessible stadium within walking distance of the heart of the city. Supporters will get the opportunity to mingle and enjoy Irish hospitality in areas like Grafton Street and Temple Bar before taking a leisurely stroll to the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I the last time I, I did that with, with any um, people who weren't from Ireland was for the Bosnia match. What, took a leisurely stroll from Temple Bar to Ireland? To uh, Viva? I'll tell you, Owen, it was from the, was it the Owl Dubliner pub? Oh, yeah. I went in there and I met Miguel Delaney Mm -hmm. and also a Bosnian football journalist who was over for the game. And he met a couple of other Bosnian football journalists. And it was kind of a traffic jam. You know, it was like dark November evening, you know, rush hour or just after rush hour. So we thought, well... You know, we could get a taxi, but why not? Why not just walk? It's a beautiful walk. We'll show you the walk. We'll show you the way out to our lovely stadium. Um, and they're like, "How long?" We were like, "That's oh, twenty minutes or so." So we took them through Trinity uh, College and then up through Marion Square. And by the time we were kind of getting up to Mount Street, they were like, "What? What is going on here? Where is this stadium?" And moaning. And we were kind of like, "We showed you the beautiful university. We're we're in this elegant Georgian boulevard." Uh, and you're moaning. So, you know, all I can say is the, the Bosnians, by the time they got to the stadium, were, were like anguished. They, you know, clutching at their knees, complaining. But it's longer than 20 minutes, to be fair. Well, if you advertise it as a 20 minute walk, I'd be annoyed as well. Maybe, I, I, yeah, maybe I was guilty of, of um, understating. It takes me about 20 minutes to walk from Baggett Street to the Aviva, to be honest. I suppose we all, we all have to go at our own pace. Um, but that's, that's obviously coming up. Ireland, um, or Dublin rather. Uh, is in there with Amsterdam, Baku, Bilbao, Brussels, Bucharest, Budapest. What's with all these B-towns? Budapest, Copenhagen, Glasgow, London, Munich, Rome, and St. Petersburg as a Euro 2020 host city. Should be good. I, I, I would prefer if the European Championships were held in one country, I'd eat again, yeah. one or two. But if it's not going to happen, then we might as well grab a few games while they're going. Yeah, why not New York, Vegas, Shanghai? I mean, why why uh, can, confine ourselves to? It's a good European point. The Euro- European cities. tour, European tour golf has a lot of tournaments in Shanghai. And Sao Paulo, Oahu. Um, <laughs> why, why not? Uh, anyway, so what, so the Champions League, a tournament which recently there were suggestions that maybe they could hold a final in New York. Why not? <laughs> you know, um, I don't know. The Champions League, the, the group stage has really kind of failed to grip. I feel this. Um, so far this this year, uh, and I saw that Sporting Intelligence put out a, a graphic which has perhaps an explanation of why that might be so. Uh, in terms of uh, they showed the the eight uh, group tables, uh, and in each case, with one exception, uh, the two teams with the biggest uh, wage budgets were the two teams in places one and two. Um, so you're getting a lot of games where it's quite obvious who's going to win. The exception was, of course, Tottenham. Tottenham, who have the biggest um, payroll in Group E, but are behind Monaco and Bayer Leverkusen, who will qualify at their expense, Spurs going into the Europa League. Um, we will get to them, because I know there are some Tottenham fans out there who who don't think we talk about them enough. Um, but just watching the game last night, the Celtic-Barcelona game, I have to say that Celtic is one of the last places I can see 
in you know European football where they really still take stadium atmosphere seriously. Unbelievable. Yeah, it's incredible. I was telling you, I was cooking my dinner yesterday while the pre-match analysis was on. Mm. I had it on in the background, was listening as best I could. Different room, you know. Then I, I just heard it had obviously gone to the stadium because the noise was insane. I couldn't help but co- just run in and and, and ah to hell, Ken, to hell with the whatever I was cooking, bit of chicken pasta. Yeah, you know. I know. Footballer's I, meal. I know. We were told recently um, by Dundalk's strength and conditioning coach that wouldn't he wouldn't touch pasta. Pasta's not the best thing, but I remain unmoved and continue to, to win the Premier League. It's a war of nutrition. Exactly, it's a war of war of nutrition, and I'm am losing that war. But anyway, so yeah, uh, it just it jumps off the screen like it really, and it gets you into this frame of mind where you think Celtic can do anything. Oh yeah, it does, against this yeah. Barcelona team yeah. with these fervent fans behind them, it's it's unbelievable. It's 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 a credit to them again. It really is, and. I mean, you saw in the 67th minute they had this thing for the uh, Lisbon Lions where everyone kind of turned on the light of their phone. Right. And so the whole stands are like glittering with these with these lights. It looks it looks amazing. I hadn't seen I hadn't seen it done. Well, I had actually seen it done when they had the floodlight failure at uh, Sunderland. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. everyone did that, but it's a good idea. So that, I mean, it was it was absolutely amazing. Um, it's the kind of thing you you rarely see anymore. You just don't see it. Um, most stadiums are incapable of, of doing that. It's a pity that Celtic don't quite have a team or a setup that justifies. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't justify, but you know, a team worthy of representing a support like that. Uh, I mean, obviously, the team tried its hard out, yeah, worked its so- socks off. So did more did, did reasonably well at times, created a few opportunities, but ultimately, it is nine. It's nine nil over two games against against Barcelona. But I was interested to see this Barcelona team. You know, the team is beginning to fade a bit, isn't it? I mean, they won 2-0. Messi scored twice again. Messi is is on course at his rate of scoring so far to break the record of scoring in the group stages. I think it's nine goals he's got. He needs 11. Um, or maybe 11 to match the record, which is obviously held by the other guy. Um, but, you know, there's a bit of... I, I was interested by Luis Suarez's performance. Really? Well, I thought he looked heavy. So he looks off the pace. He does often look that way compared to Neymar and Messi. Yeah, he's well, a different type of player. Mm. I mean, not necessarily off the pace, but he's not quite as doesn't quite have the elegance of either of those two. No, well, he's more he, he's he's kind of more thick bodied, you know, than than uh, he's got good childbearing hips. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, you know, a kind of Kenny Dalglish type physique, a uh, fine Glasgow footballer, mm. you know, uh, a great footballer, his. Um, has broad, broad hips, and that arse is close to the ground. <laughs> right, you know that's that's what you want to be looking for. <laughs> well, uh, you know, for that type of uh, player who can hold the ball. I mean, it's it's difficult for defenders to get the ball off Suarez. You know, he's able to hold them off. But I thought that we, he didn't look sharp. Like he didn't look as like when Suarez. I mean, last season he scored fifty nine goals. In a lot of those games, yeah, I'm sure listeners saying he was looking pretty elegant then. Yeah, well, he, you know, he's usually a real source of energy in the team. Yeah. You know, he's kind of, a, he's an electric kind of presence on the field. And he wasn't like that. He was just, okay, maybe he's just having an off night. And he did, there was a great save to deny him the, the header. header great, sure. And then he hit the post with a chance he should have scored. But I thought, no, nah, I'm not, not sure here. This is not the player I'm accustomed to seeing. So I wonder if he's, if maybe he's uh, getting lazy or if... Which would which would surprise me, you know, because he's always seemed to be obsessed with, you know, the game and so on. But he has had a really long period of extended period of success now, and I just wonder. I mean, Messi, I suppose, is the counter example. He's had a ten year period of almost unbroken success, but um, he's twenty nine as well, Suarez. So it shouldn't be an age related issue. Yeah, no, I don't think so. Um, but you know, when you when you look at the team, okay, the the front three is obviously great, but. The rest of the team is no longer in that, um, in that kind of category. The, the right back was it Sergio Roberto? Um, poor, like you know, it's not a patch on Alves. I mean, they were speaking about this on Ortina. They were saying, look, you know, I thought Liam Brady was quite harsh on Rakitic actually. You know, he's because he he was saying Rakitic is a worker. You know, he's not shabby. Obviously, he's not shabby, but I think he's actually a bit better than that. You know, I don't think he's just a a workhorse type of player, but yeah, I mean, he isn't as good. Who could? You're not going to find another player that good for years. You know, you'd be lucky to find another player as good as that and get him to Barcelona. 
you know, Iniesta, I suppose, is, is out of the team at the moment, injured at the moment, but um, diff- is going to be difficult to replace. You know, when you look at that uh, team, say, of 2011, they not only had great players, but they also had quick players. They had a lot of, a lot of pace, that team. The front three, if you think about it, was Messi, um, Villa, and Pedro. Mm. They were all really quick. And the current front three, Messi's not is no longer that type of player who who runs through the defense all. I mean he does sometimes but it's kind of clever movement. He's not he he doesn't tear past players the way that he used to. He just his game has changed. Suarez doesn't really do that. Neymar can kind of do that but lacks a bit of physicality. You know, I think that they uh they look a bit I still think they're probably the best team out there. You know, in a in a Europe full of imperfect teams. They're still excellent and the front three is 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 amazing. But I wonder if they're missing a little bit of energy. Like they lost Alves. Alves is huge. Like Alves is a pair of lungs on the team. You know, it's like you can't you can't expect to be the same after you lose a player like that. And I guess I don't really I don't know how they expect to. I mean, it would be impossible really for them to keep up that quality. Like to to always be buying the right players. You know, it's they've they've made a few dud signings and lately the. Mediocre ones are beginning to outnumber the, the good ones. Well, it's also not just the signings; it's the level of players coming through, mm. and it's not like the production line has stopped or anything. But as you're saying, that was kind of freakish to get Xavi, and then a few years later to get Iniesta, mm. uh, and and Messi. You know, who's also essentially a product of the youth system. Like it's kind of it's kind of the three of the best players. Whatever arguments you want to make, the possibly the best player of all time, and two players who might go down in that conversation not not to be the best players but among some of the best players I've ever played yeah uh, and I, I mean you saw Neymar how bad tempered he was last night now he got he got uh, taken off towards the end and he was getting in trouble with the referee I thought it was as blatant a second a deliberate yellow card as I've ever seen to get himself banned for the last group group match which doesn't matter now um, he got his booking, got taken off, but he was getting a lot of abuse from the crowd, which I assumed had something to do with the when he played in Scotland, 2011. I think he accused the fans of racism. Oh, he he said that oh, you know they, these racist fans. Was he playing for Brazil against Scotland? I think these racist fans are booing me, and obviously that caused outrage. People were saying, "No, we were booing you, booing you because you're a cheat, and not because we're racist." I thought they were just not very big fans of his rather loose tax affairs. <laughs> 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 well, I was going to mention the tax uh, situation because uh, so the prosecutors in Spain have called for him to get a two-year sentence, two-year jail sentence. Um, you know, he's he's on trial. He's going to be on trial for corruption. The prosecutors also called for a five-year sentence for Sandra Rossell, who was the um, president of Barcelona who made the Neymar deal happen. Um, of course. Neymar was just the prawn in a murky deal, as we could say. Um, it was one of those really complicated transfers where a lot of money was sloshing around and nobody was quite sure who was getting what. Uh, and there were p- parties to the deal who say they were swindled. They they should have got more. You know, we owned 40% of Neymar. You claimed the transfer was, you know, 17 million euros, but, like, Neymar's dad apparently got paid 40 million euros. So what was that about? You know, where's our 40%? Um, and then there's... Uh, problems to do with his uh, his taxes. Now, of course, this is a running... This is a big pattern now with Barcelona. The club has got serious questions to answer. I mean, in Glasgow, the city of of tax-compliant football clubs, um, <laughs> you know, they weren't always that way. Uh, there was a, a club that wasn't involved in last night's game, um, was sitting watching it on TVs, not far from the stadium. Um, you know, some would question whether it's even the same club. Uh, the blue club in in Glasgow, but they had a little problem with taxes, which which ended up with them, you know, officially being liquidated and busted back down to the bottom division. You know that was that that was. Uh, I mean, I guess the the nature of Spain is that it's difficult to imagine the same thing happening to Barcelona. But I do think, I mean, because Samuel Eto Samuel Eto has also been dragged into this now, uh, and this is relating to his time as a Barcelona player, two thousand six to two thousand nine. Um, defrauded three and a half million euros of tax uh, a fine, he's in line to pay a fine of uh, 14 million euros and the prosecutor has asked in this case for a ten and a half year jail sentence of of uh, Samuel Leto be longer than his football career nearly 
Yeah. Um, so again, again, another, another Barcelona player. Again, something to do with his image rights and the taxation of that. I think this is too much of a pattern for... You know, I mean, it could be that just all the players came independently to this conclusion or maybe the players were chatting to each other in the dressing room and recommending, you know, the wrong type of financial advice Which to each happens. other. Which happens. definitely happens among footballers. They introduce each other to the wrong people and so on. It does, but, you know, what happened with Rangers was that Rangers were... Um, Rangers, in an attempt to sort of compete, you know, for world domination uh, in a sort of financial... With, with a financial uh, setup that didn't really allow them to pay those type that that type of wages, found a way to channel money to players through you know employee benefit trusts, found a way basically to pay their players off books and tax free, which was illegal, and it was the discovery of years and years of this practice, which resulted in this enormous tax bill, which resulted in you know the liquidation of Rangers. <laughs> which is about as serious as, yeah. as it can get for a club. Now, you know, who knows what's what's going on in Barcelona, but they have got a serious problem here. They need to get on top of this stuff. And it's clear that they haven't been. It's been going on for a while. And I guess a lot of great players have played for Barcelona and been paying a lot less tax than they should have. Those, those guys have won a lot of big trophies for Barcelona. The team has clearly benefited from that. How active their role was in setting up this system, I suppose it comes comes out in the wash. But these things have a way of, you know, that does eventually happen. You know, I don't, I don't know. I think, I think it's it's really bad news. I'm gonna, I don't think Barcelona are going to get liquidated again if that's where you're going with this, but it do, is. Do you think, though, that if that it, it would be a bit of a stain on the record of the team? This sort of sense of, well, you know, you got the, you got this by cheating. You know, that's, that's in the worst case scenario. But, you know, there's, there's the... There's different types of doping. I mean, Arsene Wenger used to talk about financial doping. Um, if you've got players playing for you who, you know... To liquidate Barcelona Football Club, FC Barcelona again, would be like declaring war on Catalonia. Yeah. I don't know if the Spanish government would be prepared to do that. Or whoever takes care on behalf of the Spanish government. Well, wouldn't it, tax, wouldn't it be the local... Affairs. Wouldn't it be the provincial tax collectors? Wouldn't it be, the, wouldn't it be a, a Catalan affair... You know, I mean, everybody's supposed to pay their taxes, right? Yeah, of course. You can't just wave through Barcelona because they're Barcelona, can you? I think that's what they. I think that's what Rangers always thought would happen. Yeah, <laughs> happen with them. But yeah, Rangers were a pretty big deal in Scotland, though, right before all that went down. It's a, it's, a, it's a bad look. Look, I mean, we shouldn't. It's not so. It's only Barcelona players who've been accused of this. I mean, didn't Xavi, Xavi Alonso had some tax issue? You know, he ended up having to pay back taxes and. I can't remember if he was also fine, but there was definitely a, oh, Xabi, what's going on? Iker Casillas had to, had to come to a settlement. So there, we've got a couple of players from the other club uh, having these issues. But, you know, so what else? Uh, Bayern Munich lost to Rostov. The interesting thing about this, well, I mean, the, the fact that uh, there's various statistics going around, oh, Ancelotti has already lost more. By the time Pep had lost this many league games, he'd won the league. You know, he's already dropped more points than Guardiola dropped in his first season, all this kind of stuff. Um, but after they lost 3-2 to Rostov, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, uh, the CEO, um, per- criticized Jerome uh, Boateng um, for basically his lifestyle, his, his way of behaving away from the field. He's got to calm down, says Rummenigge. Since last summer, it's all gotten a bit much. It would be the interest of him and the club if he came back to earth a little. Um, this is because Boateng appears to have been doing a bunch of um, sort of extracurricular activity in two fields um, uh, social engagement uh, you know he he often finds himself I think he's kind of thrust into that role a little bit um, because you know he's a black guy who plays for the who's an important player for the national team and you know he comes from this Im- immigrant background in Berlin and so when this sort of thing is being uh talked about it frequently is you know the, the team is a symbol of integration of, of, multi, of functional multiculturalism and so on Boateng is kind of the obvious person to consult to go to you know and he's kind of become a figurehead for that uh, and also f- fashion is the other thing that he's into he does a lot of fashion which a lot of footballers do they're kind of got a lot of money to spend on clothes um, and now he's got his CEO telling him that he needs to uh, rein it in yeah which is, which is um, I mean it's unusual for um 
yeah, why couldn't he have just said this to him? Well, maybe he already has, I don't know. But to to bring that up in public, you know, it, it doesn't make Boateng look good. I can't imagine Boateng is too pleased to hear Rummenigge say this. They were yeah. also beaten last night, weren't they? Yeah, they lost 3-2, yeah. We were particularly poor in defence, says Rummenigge. Uh, if you look at the goals, we can see that we didn't deserve to win here. We squandered these points. If you score twice here, you should normally win. Uh, Boateng uh, did play, but came off uh, with a an injury. He has had a good few injuries uh, in recent times. It kind of it, it's almost a bit Vincent Company like his uh, injury struggles um, in recent times. You don't always win when you score two goals, of course. Legia Warsaw did get four on the board on Tuesday <laughs> night, <laughs> and we're still outscored by four goals. Unbelievable. Marco Royce's first game back as well, first game of the season, I think he scored a hat-trick. Well, he didn't score a hat-trick. He did take the ball, uh, but the last goal was then given as an own goal, which seemed harsh. Um, Who's, nobody's even counting at that point. Did Hummels, did Matt Hummels pick the wrong time to switch sides? You know, is it, it's going to be one of these... You know, Dortmund look quite good now. You know, it's with, with the time and time. We haven't spoken yet about the English clubs, uh, apart from to mention Tottenham had their highest wage bill in the group and they've been eliminated and as to what went wrong with, with Tottenham I mean Mauricio Pochettino was suggesting that they, you know, their squad needs to be bigger he said I told you from the beginning of our season our challenge would not be physical or tactical it would be to manage our minds I don't think we've shown enough quality to go through to the next round but it doesn't mean we don't have quality in our feet we just need to improve our mentality um, I mean Tottenham's mentality I actually think is is the best thing about the team you know they're, they're I mean, Pochettino there may be referring to the fact that they scored an equaliser and within, you know, 30 seconds had conceded a second goal. That's the kind of thing that would give Pochettino like an aneurysm, you know? Um, so he's saying this team mentally isn't isn't at it. And it's a very un, un-Tottenham-like thing to do, you know, when we talk about the last couple of seasons of Tottenham. Um, the mentality isn't the problem, though. I think the, the um, lack of ideas, the, you know, it's it's just kind of more, harder, faster, you know, let's try more, be stronger, be more aggressive. You know, this is this is all they're doing, but it's kind of like they need to try and actually almost dial it down a little bit, i say, be a bit more clever with what they're doing. Um, I also feel as though Tottenham didn't really want to be in the Champions League. You know, like, I, I think it's, for the English teams, it's, it's kind of becoming a bit of a sideshow, the Champions League. So the Champions League is becoming what the Europa League has been for the teams qualified for that. I think it, I, you don't I, think there's an, is, is it not so. one of the big aims of the Premier League to get in the top four and qualify for the Champions League? Is yeah, right? but but I mean, you know, get, getting in the top four, the whole point of that, the the big thing about that was, oh, you know, the money, the the money is huge. You know, it's transformative for your club making this making all this extra money. It's not transformative anymore. Mm. The Premier League is paying so much at the moment that. The European money does not obviously it's it's good, but like it doesn't it doesn't actually even really pay for you to have to upgrade your squad to the level where you can compete in both competitions because the players have become much more expensive as well, particularly for English clubs. So, you know, you you're kind of left to tackle all these extra games which are of a high level with and not, you know, a squad which hasn't improved to to meet the challenge of it. And I feel as though the Premier League is the the, the Premier League is bigger in their heads now. Yeah, you know, it's like this. Oh, who are we playing? Monaco, Leverkusen. They're not excited about playing these games. You know, whether they whether they should be or not, I'm not, I'm not sure. But I just don't feel as though they're really their heads are in this competition. Uh, Arsenal are obviously a lot more experienced. They've managed to get through. It could just be that it does seem to take... It took City a while. You know, it could just be that it's going to take more than a season to get to the pitch. I don't know why that is, because it's not like the teams in the Champions League, a lot of them that Spurs are playing are particularly world beaters. Mm. But it, it does seem to sometimes take a team a year or two to it, it get attuned to it. Well, there was Liverpool who managed to win it on their first appearance in it for three seasons, I think. Although it wasn't their first ever... I think it was more or less the equivalent of Tottenham this year. Yeah, but Tottenham are a club who just aren't used to playing Champions League football. No. The Champions League against current guys. Uh, no, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean they, they're they they're out anyway. It's Europa League. They say they're going to try try with that. Just the other thing on Arsenal, uh, they, uh, Arsene Wenger has uh, started saying, we've lost a winning momentum a little bit, but we played against a good team. 
I believe I have to be careful in the choice of my words. I say stuttering, it comes back at me. We have a special strength in the squad, a consistency in results. A consistency in results, actually, which in a piece Miguel wrote there a couple of weeks ago, Miguel Delaney, has, has been a pretty consistent pattern over Arsene Wenger's entire, entire time in charge of Arsenal. Yeah. They're really bad in November. Um, every if, if you look at the out of all the games they've played in each month going through uh, the season... Um, for August, 1.88 points per game. September, 2.14. And October, 2.15. They're really strong in September and October. November, that goes down to 1.59 points per game. That's over his entire time. That's a really significant drop. You know, as to what the reasons are, is it something to do with the preseason training? Um, is this the time of the season when injuries begin to accumulate? Nobody really knows, but it has been borne out again this season when they've drawn with Spurs, uh, Manchester United, and now PSG. I hereby call an end to Kennedy's report on sport. Hairdryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. The hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hairdryer, I think, at David Beckham. I thought that he threw a hairdryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Okay, Richie Sadler has popped in. Richie, how are you? Owen, how are you doing? You well? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Now, it's a heavy topic for conversation this mm-hmm. week, but I think we're all agreed that it's important to delve into this. Uh, for people who haven't been following it too closely, it's, this all started with an interview given by Andy Woodward, a uh, former crew player, to Daniel Taylor in The Guardian. He detailed the sexual abuse he suffered at the hands of Barry Bennell, a paedophile coach who was jailed in the late 90s. Since then, Steve Walters, another player, he's spoken to Taylor, another crew player, at his abuse at the hands of the same man of Bennell. And Paul Stewart, the former Liverpool player, has talked about abuse he suffered. Uh, that was at the hands of a different unnamed coach when he was a kid. So questions are being asked this week, I guess, about the inadequate response from the club at the time, from Crew Alexander at the time, with regards to those first two cases and potentially more. And, uh, you know, even as these new details emerge, it, a lot of people are unhappy with the response from within football and from particularly within that club. But I think maybe let's start with one thing that becomes clear when you read all these accounts is the absolute power that one man has in the lives of these boys. How, do, how does a situation develop where a coach has such a privileged position in the life of a player and that player's family? Well, I think each of the each of the men that have spoken have kind of given a little bit of detail about their own experiences. And, and I think to, to broaden it out, I suppose, if you are an aspiring elite athlete, you, you're going to have to at some point be taken under the wing of a really experienced or expert coach or someone who knows the game or has the contacts or who can get you to the level that you want to go. And when you approach that person or when you start working with them, you assume that the relationship is based solely on achieving sporting excellence. And in the hands of the wrong person, I mean, a position as privileged as that can really, really be abused. And this is a horrendous example of of just that. So um, it's, it's, I mean, it's a horrible story. I mean, and that's what they use. That's what these coaches, this coach seems to use. The knowledge that he is, that as the, as the young boy sees it, essentially their f- entire future is in their hands. Yeah, that, that's a common theme actually when you, when, when you look at abuse cases, that the, 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 abuser, the abuser is very aware of the privileged position they have and they hone in on that and, and completely abuse it. And like if you imagine in, 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 the, in the mind of the youngsters at the time, Again, you don't know the specifics of, the, of their background or their family situations, but if they're totally bought into the idea that this man is the one who's going to take me to where I want to go, and so the parents believe that, all their siblings, uncles, aunts, everyone believes it, and this guy is the one that has convinced everyone he's trustworthy, he's decent, and, and he's to be followed and listened to, um, that gives a huge amount of scope then for that person to abuse the position, which seems to be exactly what's happened in this case. Yeah, I mean... You know, not that I want to bring in uh, personal, you know, make this make this about me. Alan, but uh, I do remember one case uh, or an experience that I had, which kind of illustrates maybe some of the, you know, the dynamics of this. Um, you know, from the point of view of a of a kid, I remember uh, I would have been maybe twelve or thirteen, and I was uh, in the I called into the Leinster swimming squad, yeah, which was. Uh, being trained at that time by George Gibney. George Gibney, who is, 
uh, well, I mean, a well-known name in Ireland for what happened afterwards. You know, he was charged for tw- 27 counts of, of abuse. You know, he was exposed by the um, by Gary O'Toole and some of the swimmers that he had been uh, that he had been abusing at that time. This was before his exposure. You know, I guess maybe it would have been 92, kind of that time. So, so actually quite close to when it happened. But what I remember from this is that I went along to this training session, uh, which was out in Stalorgan at the swimming pool of Trojan, which is the club where Gibney used to work. And so we were all training. And, and at some point, you know, we were, out, we were out of the water and he was going to talk to us and he picked me out and he, and he got me to swim like a demonstration 50 meters butterfly. Now, it's hard for me to describe how proud I was to be picked out and asked to do this. Because, you know, I mean, it wasn't like I was one of the best swimmers in this group, but obviously I had something. I had some kind of uh, technical superiority. You know, so I was kind of, so he got me, so I was swimming, everyone else was standing on the bank watching me. So I didn't get out. And then he kind of showed, he, he kind of came over, you know, he's kind of an owlish man, like goatee beard, horn rimmed glasses. And kind of a god, you know, in this in the swimming terms. He had trained, you know, Gary O'Toole. You know, he trained the top swimmers. He was the number one coach in the country. So everybody was like, you know, this is the guy. This is, this is like as though he had some magical power to, to make you better. That, you know, he was kind of touched by genius in the way other coaches weren't, you know. Huge respect, obviously, from all the swimmers, from all the parents, too. You would never have thought. You know, it just, it just didn't occur to you that this was the type of person he really was. So I remember he then had me kind of demonstrating this 50 meter uh, or demonstrating the stroke. Hmm. You know, so I'm kind of standing there like this, you know, he's kind of showing how my arms are moving, how my shoulders are moving, you know, and uh, kind of saying, you know, this is what you need to be a bit more like. I was literally the proudest man in the world, the proudest 12 or 13 year old boy in the world. I, you know, if he'd said after that, you know, do you want to, do you want to come back? Uh, you know, to the office. And if, if he had sort of singled me out for further individual attention at that point, I would have been delighted. Just unthinking. You just of course. Have thought, of, thought about anything that could happen. No, I would have, thought, I would, I would have been, this is great. You know, it wouldn't have occurred to, to, to my sort of simple, you know, mind at that stage that there could be anything other than, that this was anything other than a good thing. You know, and I'm, and I'm sure, like, children are so trusting. That's it. Not like, nor should there, in an ideal world, nor should there be any no. thoughts that this is going to happen. Uh, that, that's, like, ideally, you don't want kids to have to think in those terms. No, I mean, th- at that stage, remember, that was that was kind of before, I don't even know if, if I mean, Gibney was, was a huge case. I mean, G- Gibney, in a way, blew, blew open this issue in, in Ireland, which obviously then, you know, became this massive scandal in Irish society, mainly related to the church, but not just related to the church. But before then, it, it kind of wasn't really something that figured all that much. You know, I mean, it wasn't, I think that, I mean, I, I don't I don't know, it's a long time since I've been in school, but I, I get the impression that this is kind of an issue which is talked about a lot more, or children are encouraged to kind of look out for, you know, certain warning signs as the, the system has been improved in certain ways. But at that time, you know, literally, I, I was just delighted. Uh, and if he had wanted to, you know, if he if there'd been any further individual sort of attention he wanted to give me, I would have cheerfully gone along with it. And they're often not how, you know, movies depict them. You know, people have this idea that a paedophile or a, a sexual predator or someone who goes after kids in this way, you know, is looks a certain way. There's some pot-bellied creep with some kind of dodgy comb over and, and that you can spot them a mile off. That's not, that's not the... the how this works. I mean, these these are often warm, charismatic, friendly, otherwise seeming decent people. And they can turn on the charm. They can turn on the charm and you you can (laughs) buy in the total trust of the parents. Mum and dad, uncle, auntie, whoever, all all the other siblings, welcome this person into their family, into their life. And in the specific example here, when you're talking about uh, aspiring young footballers, well, then he's he's the gateway. He's going to get us from where we are because you're talking about a family here, not just the one kid who's going to go off and have his dream life. Us as a family, by association, we're all gonna, we're all gonna benefit from this. So, um, it's a huge, hugely privileged position that this person has in the life of this young boy's family. It's interesting the the family element too, because one of the newer details that I saw today, this is an Ian Herbert's article in the Independent, was that one of the boys, one of the victims, talked about the fact that this is with relation to Benel, relation to the crew coach that. 
Apparently, his father and other parents confronted Bennell at his home. They told him they were going to involve the police. They obviously realised something was up, whether they were told by the kids, whatever it was. Uh, at this stage, Bennell pr- uh, began to cry and held his head in his hands. What happened, ne- what happened next, as Herbert, was extraordinary. The parents were so concerned about damaging their son's chances in football by involving police that they did not report them after all and convinced themselves they had nipped this problem in the bud. I was amazed by that. That people started thinking, there's definitely something going on here, but Jesus, we don't want to jeopardise the chances of our kids doing well in football. Yeah, that's that that particular detail was I found difficult to read. But I suppose if you put yourself in the minds of the parents, and there's a few angles that come at this. First of all, anyone who's any experience or understanding of like the the, the ordeal that people have to go through if you report something like this is is horrendous. And then there's the the there's, there's a wider concern then you know who's going to find out. And you can imagine how manipulative this person is, how he would have handled that um, that meeting with the parents at the time or what he could have said that would have influenced them to do nothing. Um, it, it does seem a very unnatural response when you're sitting here from this distance to say, well, oh my God, how, how are parents responding in that way? Why, why was the thing that they immediately, why wasn't an immediate approach made to the police? But in their minds at that time with this manipulative fella speaking in the way he did and the wider concern that he's the one that's going to get us to where we want to go. It's back again to this thing of he's got so much power in the lives of these young people. And you don't want to, it's very easy to not think of an unthinkable thing, you know, or to, or to you know, you've got, you've, you've got some suspicions about something, but you'd really rather that wasn't happening. It's remarkable how easy it is to put that aside and say, no, you know, it, it, to, to to ignore your suspicions. In, in hindsight, you realize, well, you know, I should have, I should have acted. But at the time, if you're not sure, then something's so awful. You know, it's it, it becomes, it's a kind of a denial, a kind of an evasion. Let's just pretend, not even pretend. Let's believe this isn't happening. Let's not let's not think the worst here. You know mm. what I mean? The manipulative element to all this is staggering really some of the details in the original story the interview with this uh, with Andy Woodward talking about how Benel would show his physical power to him he'd say he'd get he, you know he what what he sometimes do he would get out some nunchucks he was a master with them he'd tell me to hold a piece of paper i'd be physically shaking he'd hit it with enough force to split it in half and make a little comment you can see what i can do you see how powerful i am so we would either either use that which was a form of physical manipulation or potentially showing his physical power but also he tell him listen you're going to be dropping the team at any point I can drop you from the team which is is a huge obviously a huge fear for any young player Paul Stewart I mean his guy the the unnamed coach he talks about says that his his abuser told him he would kill his parents kill his mother kill his father kill his brothers if you breathe the word of what was going on can you get some kind of and maybe it's impossible to do get some kind of sense of what it's like to be in that mind of that 11, 12, 13-year-old Paul Stewart, who's not only having to go through the physical ordeal of what he's been put through on a on a, but we, a regular basis, but then the psychological impact then of being told, you know, one false move by me here and mum is dead or, or dad is dead or the wider then threat that well, maybe my football career is over um, and that you actually sometimes internalise this as, well, this is my fault. And then there's the wider, really complicated things. I, I, I kind of work in this field now. I, I, I'm, I'm a psychotherapist, so I've, I've had many conversations personally and professionally with people who have had experiences like this. And, and one of the things that always strikes me when they talk is that there's some sense that they start looking at their own behaviour. They start questioning, you know, what could I have done differently? What should I have done differently? Should I have spoken up? Did, 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 did I deserve this? Why, why was it me and not the next fella? And they internalise all these really negative, difficult, complex emotions and the lasting damage it can have on people right into their, 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 their adulthoods in every area, in, in, in their, their personal relationships, their, their, their sexual relations and even with their family. Like if you, if you go back to, an, uh, imagine a scenario where you are the 12-year-old and the place you're being abused is at training. Yeah. And let's say it's your dad who drops you there every night or your mum. And then in later life, you go, hang on a second. Like, I'm 12 at this point. Why was mum and dad not protecting me? Actually, why were they delivering me 
to my abuse. And now mum and dad are totally unaware of this. But you, you, you don't say any of this because you haven't reached a point in your life where you can say the thing that happened to you. It's, it's all in your own head. And, and, and it stays there. And Paul Stewart talked about his, his relationship then with drink and drugs. And this was his way of coping with it. Like a huge amount of people who, who, who go on and have issues in addiction have had some kind of childhood sexual trauma. And they turn to drink and drugs to just to numb the pain. It's, 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 it's an easier option to try and numb the pain and forget the experiences than actually sit down with someone and say the thing you've never said to articulate it, to put it out there into the outer world, because you don't know what's going to happen once you've said it. But to carry it alone for as long as these men have had to do, and then to have the wherewithal to then speak publicly about it, it's, it's, it's a very moving thing. Well, particularly the, uh, Steve Walters, he said that he'd only told very close friends and family. He, n- nobody had known that he was one of the players who had been abused by this man, and he just wasn't able to do it. It was only after reading another person doing it that, that he could do it. And I think... Like it's stating the obvious to a certain extent that this has a long-term impact on people, but it, it really does affect the, these sort of people for the rest of their lives. Something that, as horrific as that that happens when they're 11, 12, 13. It, it, it can do, and I know it, like everyone's experience is different. If you are someone, imagine the difference between being someone who never gets to the point where they say to another human being what they've gone through. So their abuser might still be in their life, might still actually be actively abusing other people um, and no one else knows that and you're carrying this alone as opposed to you might be someone who's at a point where you've said it to somebody and you've actually reported it and that person is now in prison and you've gone through all sorts of kind of supportive therapy and you're at a different place around it all and you don't feel about yourself as negatively as you used to. So so there are different experiences completely but um, the actual ordeal itself, it, it, it's... It's horrific beyond description for people. Yeah, it's the ordeal of what happened to them and the manipulation around it, everything around it, uh, clearly from, from you know what we're saying here. The, the sort of um, bravery that is, is mentioned here and the effect that one person speaking can have on others coming out and talking about that, is that true? Because it sounds like this is what we hear, that if one person can come out, then it maybe emboldens others. Is that the case? It seems to be this week. Well, well, well we, we're hearing that now on a constant basis, particularly in the public conversation around mental health, that there's this, this kind of enthusiasm um, for everyone to speak publicly about what they're going through. And if you talk publicly about something, you might strike a chord with somebody who's also going through the same thing in private. By talking publicly, you normalise it and you give someone the sense that, you know, it's not just me that's going through this. But in something as, as in, in the cases that we're talking about here... Um, I think it really makes a huge impact on people to hear someone else say it. To, you know, this, this isn't just me. This wasn't just... And, and they, when they talk about what it was like to have gone through what they've gone through and when they open up about the damage it's still having, the impact it's having on them even today and how they felt about themselves and their behaviour and, and everyone else around, it, it can really, really be a helpful thing for somebody. Now, I, I, I don't think... And, and, and it always kind of jars at me a little bit when the immediate response to somebody talking publicly about what they've gone through is we call them courageous and we call them brave. Why, um, do, why does that jar with you? It's, 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 case? I, I, I think it's a personal choice because I don't like the implication that if you're somebody who chooses to keep this private or if you're somebody who doesn't have the wherewithal to tell a journalist or a chat show host about what you've gone through that in some way you lack okay. bravery, that you <coughs> lack courage. I, I, I was only struck again by this one working with people that and you read many people write blogs kind of anonymously about it, that when they see public people or, or, or people who've spoken publicly about what they've gone through be called these things, brave and courageous, it just further stigmatises what they're going through. Because not only are they going through what they're going through, but they haven't even got the bravery or the courage to tell the world. Sometimes telling the world isn't the right thing to do. People are sometimes private and there's a bit of prudence involved. Um, but for people who are at a place where they would like to speak out, absolutely respect their decision and those who don't you have to equally respect that too personal call absolutely the club response to all this uh, apparently well even the way this was re- reported at the time I mean this guy was jailed in 1988 these it, these are all new details and people talking about this in detail for the first time but he was convicted and jailed and only apparently six local reports appeared in some of the local newspapers in the late 90s when this happened in 98 
Uh, the Independent in the UK ha- was the, gave it the only national coverage, and that was 270 words. The club at the time, well, Dario Grady at the time, the manager, of course, long-time manager crew, said everyone at the club found it hard to believe he was guilty when he was first arrested. When we first found out what had happened, we were very supportive. All this is now a long time ago, and we were untouched by the court case this week. We were all just carrying on as normal. That's Dario Grady uh, back in 19... Uh, Back in 1998, this week he's uh, he says that he's been told to keep out of it by the club. The chairman has told him to keep out of it. The chairman's been talking a bit about it, but uh, is there an onus on on Dario Grady as the man who was manager then and has been Mister Crew his entire life to condemn the actions of this manager, to talk in, in some more detail, to apologise on behalf of the club for what happened? Well, I think his his comment there that he was told to keep out of it by the chairman. I think that's a lot of. Clubs or companies' response when they're faced with some kind of a crisis, you just decide, listen, we're going to speak with one voice. So in this case, maybe it's the chairman. So everyone else is told no public comments on the record. Um, whether he is an onus to come out and apologise on behalf of the club or explain what happened, I think absolutely what's out there already from him on record is woefully inadequate. Yeah. I, I I don't I don't think you can like you you can maybe correct your original statement look back and go actually do you know what in hindsight I was maybe to wrong, wrong to lead with you know how surprised I was initially what, like I should have only said my God I can't believe what those children have been put through and you focus on the victims mm-hmm. and you express your disgust with that and you absolutely support the notion that this person will be removed from access to children for a long long time so I think there's absolutely there'll be plenty of opportunities for him to come out and correct that statement and, and update it I mean Dario Grady was this, that, could, this could happen in the next 24 hours or by the time people are listening to this podcast mm, by the yeah. way but we have to speak with the information that we have at the mm. time mm. he was manager of crew from 1983 to 2007 and is still at crew um, you know football director director of the academy was as you said Mr. Crew I'm amazed so far that he hasn't felt the need to come out and put a lot of, uh, you know, and, and explain exactly how there's a lot of space between him and the and these things that went on well, at his club. Well, one of the incidents happened in his house. In his house. And he had no knowledge of it. That's, uh, But at the same I'm, time, I'm that, 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 that is something that has happened. So it, it seems incredible. That I'm amazed that Dario Grady has not come out <laughs> and spoken in a lot of detail about this in order to explain why it had nothing to do with him. I'm amazed by that. Richie, listen, it's been, uh, it's a tough topic and we appreciate you chatting about it today. Thanks, Emil. Cheers, lads. He's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. If you happen to be one of the presumably small number of people, I hope, who listen to the football podcast but shamefully overlook our other Irish Times Second Caps podcast, maybe take today's show for a spin in studio. We're going to have one of the biggest names in the history of Irish sport, Paul O'Connell, and in advance of Katie Taylor's first professional fight this weekend. We have a great chat with Christina McMahon. She's from Monaghan, has actually fought Katie's opponent, but her story, Christina's story, paints a fairly bleak picture of where the sport is at and the type of challenges that Katie will have to overcome if she is going to live up to this hype, which has her revolutionising the professional game, as she did with the amateurs. Before we go, Ken, quick word on Gareth Southgate, who I presume this has been dragging on a bit. Why hasn't he been appointed by now? Um, well, uh, if you believe Stan Collymore, he pretty much has been appointed. Um, so he, he will, be, I'm sure he will be the manager. Um, Steve Holland is, is the coach. He's, he wants to take with him from Chelsea. Uh, he wants him to work kind of part-time. Tottenham are the only team who have objected. They say, no, we don't want Steve Holland looking at our players' fitness data. Every other club is like, yeah, it's okay. But Tottenham guard that kind of thing a bit more okay. closely, which is sort of interesting. But, um. That's that. The other thing I want, that we have to mention is that Dundalk are playing tonight in the Europa League. If they can beat AZ Alkmaar, uh, they put themselves in a really strong position going into the last game. They're level in points with Maccabi Tel Aviv, um, four points each. Zenit have run away with the group, 12 points out of 12. Uh, so it's really between Maccabi Tel Aviv and Dundalk. Uh, so they kind of need to win that one tonight. And if they do, um, then they're looking good. 
Quick reminder, our December 4th show live from the Liberty Hall Theatre, the gang's all here, celebrating our 750th Irish Times Second Captain's podcast, will be available to download the following day. That's Monday, 5th of December. And that show comes with many thanks to Aer Lingus and Original Penguin Clothing. Thanks again. Thanks, so. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.